Welcome to Reimagination Nation. I'm Maria Hinojosa. You know Ava DuVernay because she's a pretty extraordinary film director. And you may know activist Linda Sarsour, a Muslim woman from Brooklyn. She helped to create the Women's March. Today, we're going to be talking with both of them. They're part of a group called SCORE, the Solidarity Council on Racial Equity. And you're like, wait, what's that? Well, SCORE was brought together by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and I was asked to be a member. And we started meeting before the pandemic began, a group of about 20 thinkers, actually really doers. And we would come together to talk about solidarity and racial inequity. And then the pandemic happened and our meetings became virtual. And then the protests over the murder of George Floyd pulled into sharp focus the devastating impact of racial injustice. And the conversation within SCORE turned to how, in this moment, can we inspire, actually, a reimagining of our communities and of these systems. And that's where this podcast and the We Imagine Us project all began. So today we are going to hear from the activist Linda Sarsour and from the film director Ava DuVernay. But we're also going to hear from the person who envisioned and created SCORE. That is Lejeune Montgomery Tebron. She's the first woman, first black president and CEO of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and the creator of SCORE. So, Lejeune, welcome to Reimagination Nation. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. So, Lejeune, this podcast is really all about the idea of imagining and creating a more equal and more equitable world, right? And there's a lot of hope in that process of reimagining. With all that in mind, you come up with this idea to create a group of thinkers and its score. The Solidarity Council on Racial Equity. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with it, how you see its purpose, and how you're seeing the work of SCORE now? SCORE was a vision that I had, I said, in probably one of the darkest moments of 2016. In that moment, the nation was being divided. The expression was so clear and profound of division and divide and conquer. So in that moment of my darkest despair, I just thought about solidarity as the opposite of that. And I saw that no one was talking about where people were coming together. Together in solidarity, we could show and create the narrative of racial equity that works for everyone. And the people to solve it would be people of these different ethnicities with their expertise and their brilliance. I've asked a lot of the SCORE members, can you paint a picture of what the future looks like, this reimagined future? And it's kind of like I suddenly hear the little birds, you know, in the background, you know, like a little cartoon and everything is like pastel colors and everybody's happy. And when Lejeune is dreaming, what does that future where there is solidarity, where there is racial equity, where there is, in fact, love. Paint that picture for us. 
So let me go back to my childhood as I and I spoke about, you know, how fortunate I think I was that I did live in a family where we uh, pursued our opportunities and we had those opportunities. But my vision of true racial equity is to go back to that neighborhood where every friend I had, every family on my block had the same opportunities. Their schools were not disinvested in. No matter what school they attended, they had resources. And those children were, you know, nurtured to dream and all pursued their highest dreams. And that diversity of dream and vision created a, a ecosystem of thriving people and thriving families. So, you know, when I envision what racial equity looks like is a place where the designers of the systems bring that love and that understanding of humanity. And the system that's designed is designed for everyone, not to advantage some and disadvantage others. Lejeune, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lejeune Montgomery Tebron is the president and CEO of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Coming up, powerhouse activist Linda Sarsour. She's going to talk about growing up Muslim American in Brooklyn, and she tells us about her reimagined world. The first thing I want you to do with me, take me back to when Linda is a little girl. Mm -hmm. And when Linda starts imagining, there's a whole other way of seeing the world or there's a way in which I belong in this world in which my voice matters. Can you take us back? Because we want to get to that place. You're this extraordinary dreamer. I'm in public school 169 in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. My principal is Yvette Aguirre, a Puerto Rican woman who was always wearing heels and walked and strutted up the hallways and just someone who saw me amongst a student population of about 1,500 other children. And I was the first to go to school in my family. I'm the oldest of seven children. And my school was predominantly Latino, some East Asians that included Chinese and some Japanese in my school. And of course, there were pockets of children who were like me, who were parents, um, had come from parts of the Middle East and I felt like that was the world that I wanted to live in. I saw a woman who was my principal who was brown and I saw children who looked like they came from all parts of the world. And I felt like this is probably a good world to live in, a good world to be in. And then being the oldest of seven, being able to watch my siblings who were literally all one grade behind me, two grades behind me, three grades behind me. I had a sibling in every grade um, in the school and trying to figure out how to navigate being a young Palestinian Muslim American daughter, a parent who didn't speak much English, having to translate for my parents at open school nights, at parent-teacher conferences, helping my mom fill out all my school paperwork, being really independent as a child, figuring out my own academic future. 
and then being able to advocate and have those conversations with my siblings is kind of how I found my voice. Um, I found myself as a very young leader put into a circumstance by being the daughter of immigrants, but also feeling like some sort of solidarity because the children who were my age in my class were going through similar situations. And, you know, going up into middle school and then high school in New York City, and then becoming a little more sophisticated about understanding what were really the stories of the people who were around me. Parents working multiple jobs, you know, kids who may not have had a a parent at home because they were incarcerated and just really starting to be a young kid, just trying to figure out, like, what is this world that I live in? And then understanding that it actually wasn't that great of a world. And who do I want to be in this world? And I believe that children, if given the opportunity to tell their stories, to give them the tools, the creativity to tell the world who they are and what kind of world they wanted to live in, that I could really make a difference. And so my whole dream growing up from the fifth grade all the way till I got even to college was to be a high school English teacher and to teach young people of color how to tell their stories. We're closer, much closer, to racial equity. So what does that world look like through Linda's eyes? That world with my great-great-grandchildren is a world full of joy, a world where we open our television sets or our God knows what will be around at that time, where we can watch people feeling joy and watching other people also engaging in joy. My life with my great-great-grandchildren is about safety and security. It's about being able to go out anywhere, anytime, in any part of this country and just focus on the joy and not have to worry about, are my great-grandchildren safe? You know, can my great-granddaughters wear hijab and just go to any place at any time of night and be able to experience joy and be together in safety and security? I see a time with my great-great-grandchildren when they um, are able to create their own generational wealth, that they don't have to worry about all these extra things that our generation worries about, that we can't even build kind of a pathway to success for our great-grandchildren. But by that time, our great-grandchildren would already have maybe bought their own homes. Maybe they have their white picket fence um, and their little, you know, gardens outside of their homes. You know, when you never have to open a newspaper and read about a young Black man or woman being killed at the hands of police, uh, a world where there is no police, actually, a world where there's no ice, a world where there's no prisons, because everybody has what they need. Everybody has more than adequate housing. Everybody has a job that they love that pays them in a dignified way that allows them to not just survive, but to thrive. A world where we have an abundance of mental health services and health care and preventative health care and everybody has health care. And so we don't have to deal with issues of gun violence and guns because there is no crime. There's only a world of joy. And that's the world that I want to live in. And I believe it's actually a world that is possible. Palestinian, Brooklynite, Muslim-American activist and organizer Linda Sarsour. A 
Ava DuVernay directed the films 13th and Selma, among many others, and she's also a part of SCORE. She's going to talk about racial equity now and about how she imagined her way and worked her butt off into uncharted territory as a Black woman director in Hollywood. I worked in the film industry as a crew member. One of the people whose names are on the scroll that most people walk out of when you're at a movie and was proud of that and loved that because I love movies and I love the process of making them. But after being on so many sets, I started to feel like, you know, I could do what that one person in the center of the action was doing, which was the director and really didn't have a lot of precedent, didn't see, didn't know of any black women doing it at the time, um, didn't see them amplified in the press wasn't aware of Black women who had been making films independently up until that point. And so um, just started to make my own things, small things on my own, never imagining that they'd ever really be seen beyond the independent festival circuit. And, you know, things kind of took off from there. So really me getting into film didn't come from any desire to be famous or make a lot of money, because at the time there was no there was no precedent for that being able to happen for someone like me. It really came out of having stories that I needed to tell and things that I wanted to say and express. And that was my intention. And that intention has led me to many beautiful places. So how did you understand the possibility of learning to use film, learning to use your voice, your storytelling as one of the many tools that we can use to talk about or achieve or get closer to racial equity? Early on, my interest wasn't in using film as a tool. It was using film as a language to express myself. And it just happens that the things that I want to express have to do with Black people. And that that includes the joy, the triumph, the glory, the flavor, the love. But it also includes why all those things are so extraordinary, because they are emanating from a people who has been you know, severely oppressed, tortured, murdered, ostracized, and terrorized. And so um, that desire to tell, you know, history, the reality, the modernity, the future of Black people, you know, uh, it's hard to do that without addressing, you know, the place in which we stand and sit, you know, which is America and the systems in which we're ensnared. And so um, in doing that as a filmmaker, I guess I've come to be known for telling stories that are about racial equity and injustice, but really I'm just following my my heart's desire to tell the story of Black people and, and all our incarnations. For me, where I am right now, it's focus on um, what can we do in these moments as opposed to kind of coddling or spending a lot of time thinking about other people's fear and resistance. I think about more of disrupting systems, celebrating the joy that we have, finding spaces that are liberated territories where we can thrive and just, you know, creating a new energy. And part of the reason why last summer might not have been the catalyst that so many people hoped is because in the moment there was a lot of focus on the fear, the resistance, and explaining that to those people as opposed to the propulsive nature of new energy, bold and brave ideas that pushes it forward and making it so that those people just have to catch up as opposed to everyone stopping down to 
explain, share, be in our feelings to, you know, help the people who are afraid. Um, that's how I feel about it. That might sound uh, like it lacks empathy, but at this point, there's enough information. <laughs> there's enough that we've been through as a country that it, if you are not tuned into it, I think it really means you don't want to be. And so <laughs> there's no reason for me to take my time and energy to try to convince you. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep going. So who do you turn to in these moments? And as you turn to them, are you also thinking like, wow, we've got to go to hell to get to a place that actually helps us break through hell. Like we've had to go through 2020 in the pandemic in order to get to a place where we are essentially forced to begin to reimagine. Yeah. Where do I go to? Um, I'm really looking to the people who are around me in this moment, uh, looking to care for them and to get to care for each other, make sure that folks are healthy and really taking inspiration, especially in these moments in these last couple of years, you know, from the you know freedom fighters right around us, you know, who is locally doing the work, who is right around you that you can support, that you can be a champion for, that you can advocate for, that you can make an easier way for. Be like the folks who we chronicle in the film Selma, you know, men and women who supported the folks who were marching, who were making the food, who were making sure that they were healthy, who were making sure that they came home to a ward bed. There's so many ways to um, be a part um, of a movement towards justice. And I, I talked to so many people and, you know, you read the, the, the work of scholars and activists and famous people and you think they're so far away from you because their sages and their wisdom is so removed from our everyday and so I just love to look around me and see what I can see and be inspired by what's right in front of me. Ava, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for having me. Really good to talk to you today. Director, writer and producer, Ava DuVernay. Reimagination Nation was produced by Futuro Unidad Hinojosa and PRX as part of the We Imagine Us project. Executive producers are myself and Diane Sylvester. Our senior supervising producer is Gregory Branch. Podcast producer is Andres Caballero. Project editor is Khalif Watkins. The audio engineer is Leah Shaw Dameron. Our production manager is William Oaks IV, production coordinator Jessica Ellis, assistant project manager Raul Perez, post-production supervising producer Tania Bustos. The media manager is Alexander Garcia. Our music was composed by Michael Ramos. The Reimagination Nation project is supported by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first. I'm your host, Maria Hinojosa. Join us for our next episode of Reimagination Nation. You can find us online at weimagineus.org, PRX, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our companion fiction podcast series, the long way around. Next time on Reimagination Nation, solidarity now and in this country's history, a conversation with author and activist Heather McGee and with professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, 
the fabulous Manuel Pastor. <laughs> 